Cleves, Chapter 6 I spent one last day with you, Alice, and Roger. Jane took Walter out for the day, and I stayed with the two of you, playing games, bathing you both, teaching you songs. This was the hardest part for me, that again I was leaving you. But I knew that you were both in good hands. That night, I said my prayers with you both, and blessed you. I begged God to keep my little household safe, packed my bags and slept briefly. At daybreak, Tom and I left, him carrying my bags. We made our way to Hampton Court, where he left me just outside the Queen's apartments. God bless you, Cat, Tom murmured and kissed me on the forehead. May God go with you until we meet again. Over the next few days, I started to settle into Queen Anne of Cleves' household she was forthright, always kind, but sometimes tactless. Catherine Willoughby, Duchess of Suffolk, was one of the main ladies serving the Queen. She welcomed me to court and immediately checked that my living conditions were acceptable. I told her that I was happy with them. I had a bed in the maid's dormitory and my meals were all provided. I was worried that I might not receive my wages for a long time, and she intervened to ensure that I had an immediate payment. I sent a message to Tom, and he came to collect it. I burst into tears when I saw his dear face, and I could have sworn he did too. How are the children? I begged him to tell me that you were all thriving, which you were. Jane was an excellent nursemaid. Then I asked him about Will. Have you visited Will? Is he well? Tom shook his head. I have visited him, yes, but he's being moved to another part of the tower and visits are not allowed. When he told me, I was worried, but he assured me it was because he'd run out of funds to pay for privileges and not any sign of worse trouble. My tears renewed when he told me this. I felt so helpless. The little money I'd given to Tom was just enough to keep our household going. There was nothing left to buy better conditions for Will. I'll get more money soon, I told Tom. Then we can give some to Will. But for now, there's nothing to spare. He nodded sadly. Will's told me that the children must come first. He's strong. He can survive this. If you can get more money, we will send it. But I know it is difficult, Cat. Do not disturb yourself. Among the crowd of ladies surrounding the Queen was a young woman called Catherine Howard. She was of no importance, not a Duchess nor a Countess, but she had caught the King's attention and the gossip was that she would soon become his mistress, particularly as things were not going well with the Queen. Catherine Howard was tiny and exquisite. Standing beside her, any woman would look like a heifer, but Anne of Cleves looked like a giantess, 
her features crudely drawn as compared to the delicacy of Catherine's tip-tilted nose, rosebud lips and lambent golden eyes. The king was kind to her as she was to everyone, but Catherine Howard was not a good lady-in-waiting. She giggled behind her hand at the Queen's German accent and she was always a little late in curtsying. Not enough to be reprimanded, but enough to suggest that she thought it was a waste of time. But I cannot say that I disliked Catherine Howard. She was so young and full of fun that is not often seen at court. Unlike other grand ladies, she was always polite to servants and frequently thanked us for our work. She sang sweetly and often asked me to accompany her in her favourite songs. I remember once we were singing, I noticed a maidservant surreptitiously skipping to the tune as she brought in some fresh linen. Unfortunately, Catherine noticed too, burst out laughing and ran over to the maid and gave her a hug. The girl, very embarrassed, had apologised immediately, but Catherine just laughed. She was a bit wild, Catherine. We did not see the king, except at public events. He did not visit Anne, as he had his previous queens, for his domestic comforts. We all knew by then that they weren't sleeping together, but he didn't even visit for a late-night glass of spiced wine or a quick morning conversation. I was told they'd been sharing a bed at first, but that this had got less and less frequent. The ladies wondered why Anne was not pregnant during those months, and they asked her what went on with the king. She doesn't know what it is to be married, I heard. She says the king would kiss her goodnight and then turn over and go to sleep. She thought that was what it was like to be a wife, if only. There started to be rumours going around that Anne smelled bad and that her buxom breasts were a sign she wasn't a virgin. I followed the Duchess of Suffolk's lead in this. I did not believe the rumours. I had never found that Anne of Cleves smelt bad, rather the reverse. She always smelt clean, like fresh linen to me. And she was a normal, strong, healthy girl. She didn't have the little rosebud tip breasts that Henry liked, but that didn't mean she wasn't a virgin. Indeed, later, when she told me about her sheltered youth, I could not see that she would have had any opportunity to be alone with a man. The person who took up most of the King's attention was Catherine Howard. The Earl of Essex, Thomas Cromwell, was out of favour, as were most of the King's advisers. So he spent his time dancing and flirting with Catherine. He bought her trinkets, which she later displayed to all the ladies, including Queen Anne. See what His Majesty's given me. He said my skin was as perfect as these pearls. Can you believe it? The Queen nodded, nodded politely and waved her hand as if to dismiss the girl. But she didn't stop. I'm pure, you see, a snow-white virgin. The Queen's face was blank with hurt. She had never had such a compliment from the King. I helped cheer the Queen. She would often call for me to play a merry song from her homeland or one of the King's compositions to which she would practice her dance steps. Then she would pause, panting, and smile directly at me. What would I do without you, Cat? 
You keep me happy, my songbird. It was hot that early summer, and Anne sweated in her heavy court gowns. We all did, but it was Anne that the king noticed. I saw him looking at her with distaste and refusing to match the gracious smile she gave him. It was another long, hot afternoon, and the atmosphere in the Queen's rooms was somnolent. Queen Anne was sitting back in her chair, daydreaming, her eyes half-closed. The ladies talked quietly. A door creaked open, and the Duchess of Suffolk hurried in, curtsied to the Queen, and spoke urgently. Your Majesty, I must tell you, I have been told that the Earl of Essex has been arrested and is now in the tower. Queen Anne's face went white. She got out of her chair hastily, as if there was something she could do. Of course there wasn't, but still she had to check. You mean Thomas Cromwell, the King's most important minister? The Duchess of Suffolk went over to her and guided her back to her chair. Yes, Your Grace, he has been accused of treason and removed from all the King's councils. Queen Anne looked at her. What does this mean for me? she asked. Everyone knew that Thomas Cromwell had been the prime mover behind her marriage to the King. Do not distress yourself, Your Grace. These are the affairs of men. They will not affect you. I stood to one side of all the women fluttering around the Queen, fetching her wine, rubbing her forehead with scented handkerchiefs. No one realised it, but my shock was even greater than the Queen's. I had been worried about Will, but at least I had known that Cromwell was likely to release him once the problems around the Cleves' marriage had been resolved. I knew that, like Sir Thomas Wyatt, my Will would be protected by Cromwell even although he was in the tower. But now Cromwell himself was imprisoned and in great danger. All of his men were unprotected. I felt a great fear clutch at my heart. Yet again, Will and I were caught up in the machinations of the court. But in this case, the risk was far greater than before. I had to do something. But what power did I have to influence events? A simple musician would not even be heard. I excused myself from the Queen's chamber. I was not missed. She was crying now, and her ladies were talking with her quietly, trying to calm her. I went to the maid's dormitory, where I prayed silently, begging Jesu to show me a way forward. I believed, as did the reformers, that I do not need a priest to hear the word of Jeju, and I hoped maybe he would give me a sign. My eyes fell on the small flask of mead from Wolf Hall that was on the small table beside my bed. I picked it up and drained the last of it. As its honeyed sweetness smoothed its way down my throat, the beginnings of an idea started to form. Yes, there might be a way. I went to find a messenger to send a brief message to Tom. He reluctantly agreed when I told him there would be some reward for him when he returned. Later that night, the messenger returned with a note from Tom and two flagons of mead. Tom's concern was obvious. Cat, I send the mead. I pray to God that all is well, 
They are talking in the streets of the happenings at court. Keep my son safe if you can. As I read it, my stomach lurched. My idea might not work, and even if it did, there was no guarantee of a good result. My reward, mistress, the messenger reminded me. He looked disappointed when I gave him one flagon of the mead, but brightened up when I told him that it was a world-famous aphrodisiac. I took the other with me to the maid's dormitory and lay in bed praying. Sleep was impossible. The sun came through the windows early. It was nearly midsummer. All the maids were still sleeping, some snoring, some peacefully dreaming. I got up and pulled on my clothes. I had decided to try to catch the king's gentlemen as they made their way from mass. The queen would not require my services until later in the day. I pulled my coif tightly under my chin, lowered my head and made my way from the protection of the queen's apartments into the main part of the palace. People were up and about now, mainly servants. The heat hung heavily already through the building, along with the scent of rancid food. I made my way outside, past the fountains, and then towards the entrance to the chapel royal. This was not a part of the palace I knew. I hoped that if I lurked near the entrance, I would be able to speak with someone who might help Will. I stood beside the door, peeping into the magnificent high-ceilinged space, lit with glimmering candles. Men were starting to stroll into the chapel now, talking loudly, slapping each other on the back. The king would be the last to enter through his private entrance. What are you doing here, woman? A guard appeared. What are you trying to do? Watch the king of his devotions. Get you gone, wench. No, no, I didn't want to intrude. I just need to catch someone as they come in, I protested. But the guard pushed me back heavily, nearly toppling me over. You've no business here now. Get you gone. He herded me away from the door and out into the yard. I turned back for a moment and saw the man I had wanted to catch. But it was too late. I was outside. The door slammed behind me. I retraced my way around the building and back into the great hall. There was a bustle of preparation, but I was able to catch one page that I knew. Can you tell me where Edward Seymour's apartments are? I have a message for him. The boy tried to be helpful. I can take it for you if you wish, he said. Won't take me a minute. So the apartments were not far off. I politely declined. I have to tell my mistress that he's received her gift. I must give it in person. So can you tell me where to go? The boy shrugged his shoulders. Have it your way. Here, I'll show you. He led me away from the hall, up some stairs and through numbers of chambers. Just there to your right hand, he said. I thanked him, giving him a smile to make up for the lack of remuneration. He smiled back, turned round and left me, standing in front of an oak door that swung open when I knocked. After a minute, a harassed-looking manservant appeared. What do you want? I have a message for Sir Edward Seymour. He sighed and held out his hand. I'll take it. I clung on to my message and the flagon of mead. No, I must give it in person. It is a message from Mistress Mead, whom he knows well. She has sent him some of her mead also. 
I held up the flagon for him to see. The manservant looked unconvinced. He's in chapel at the moment, at his prayers. Will he be long? Please, may I wait? Mistress Mead is very dear to his heart. The man pursed his lips. Very well. Should be back before the hour is out. Wait here. Do not move. If I see you try to go further, I'll throw you out, so be warned. He left me standing by the entrance and hurried back into the apartment. Preparing for a long wait, I sat down on the floor, propping myself up against the wall. Closing my eyes, I prayed that he wouldn't forget me. So, you want to see me? A richly dressed man was standing over me. I blinked and looked up. Yes, it was Edward Seymour. By God's breath, it is Cat, is it not? Are you here from Mistress Mead? Is she well? I scrambled to my feet and presented him with a flagon. Sir, this is her mead. She is well, as far as I know. But, sir, I must speak with you. I beg your forgiveness for this ruse. It was the only way I could speak with you. He looked at me crossly. I should have you whipped. Do you not know I'm a busy man? I'm far too busy to be concerned with the affairs of servants. You remember, sir, that I am a musician, I said proudly, and I work for the Queen, as I did for your blessed sister, Queen Jane. He glanced at me and pulled me by the hand. Come with me. He brought me into the apartment, into a small antechamber, furnished simply with a desk and a chair. He sat down behind the desk, clasped his hands together and spoke. So, what is it? Be quick, girl. Sir, I ask about my husband, named Will Cook. Never heard of him. What about him? Sir, he was part of the negotiating team that dropped the treaty with Cleves. His face darkened. I see, and so now he's in trouble, I nodded. I can't do anything about that, Edward Seymour protested. All of Cromwell's men are tainted. You must know that. The tears welled into my eyes. Oh, don't cry. Why do women cry? He got out of his chair, came over to me, pulling out a lace handkerchief. I took it and blew my nose noisily. He flinched slightly in distaste and then turned to me. He's in the tower and he's done nothing wrong. All he did was obey instructions and now Cromwell has fallen. Who will protect him? I snuffled and mopped at my cheeks. Is there nothing you can do? I asked desperately. I hope that you might be able to help. Edward Seymour shook his head. No, my dear lady, there is nothing. It will do no good to bring your husband to the king's attention now. He is too linked to Cromwell. So what can I do? I was desperate. I cannot leave him in that terrible place. Edward Seymour looked thoughtful. Hmm, we might be able to help each other, mistress. You serve the present queen, do you not? I noticed that he used the word present, which suggested that Anne of Cleves might not be King Henry's queen for much longer. Yes, I do, I said guardedly, but I'm just a musician. I have no influence. That doesn't matter. Now say I lose the paperwork for your husband. He doesn't come up for trial because everyone has forgotten he exists. He will simply stay in the tower. 
But I don't want him to stay in the tower. I want him to be freed, I cried out. You need to be patient, my dear. Yes, your husband must kick his heels for a few months. I can hinder any trial easily. Then, when the Cromwell business is done and the king is happy, it will be easy. He can be pardoned then as a bit of administrative tidying up. I listened intently. Edward Seymour spoke some sense, I had to admit. Can you really do that? I demanded. He shrugged his shoulders. For someone as insignificant as your husband, it would be easy. So what do you want me to do? I knew he would not do this without a reward. He spoke rapidly and without emotion. I need information, Cat. The King has decisions to make. I need to know Queen Anne's reactions to those decisions. You can tell me what she's thinking. I don't want diplomatic niceties. I want to know whether she will cooperate or be difficult. You expect me to be a spy? Edward Seymour laughed and patted my hand. Exactly. Can you do this for me? I don't like to spy on the poor lady, I said reluctantly. She has so few friends. Edward Seymour was almost jovial. So you can prove yourself to be a good one, my dear. Her life will be so much easier if she can be persuaded to follow the king's directions. I need to know what she wants, what she finds difficult. That will make negotiations so much easier. You do not wish her harm? I asked sharply. I could not help but remember Queen Catherine and Queen Anne Boleyn. One sent away to die and one killed on the executioner's block. That was the price that was exacted for not following the king's directions. Edward Seymour smiled reassuringly. Of course not. Look at me, do I look like a villain? I had to admit that with his ruddy cheeks, fair hair and plump figure, he looked harmless. So, grudgingly, I accepted his suggestion. I did not entirely believe that he could keep Will safe, but there was no other option open to me. He smiled broadly and patted my hand again. You know where to find me, Cat, or you can send a letter should the Queen's household move. I should have guessed from those words what was about to happen. The Queen was not anticipated to remain in residence with the King. Indeed, a few days later, word came through that the Queen... Her ladies and her servants were all to move to Richmond Palace to avoid the plague. But there is no plague in London, I said to the Duchess of Suffolk. My father-in-law tells me it's not a problem for them. The deaths are very few. Catherine was diplomatic. The Queen is very important to the King. He does not want her to even take a small risk, she said. Richmond is cooler in the summer anyway. I knew she was making the best of things. The truth was that the king wanted the queen out of the way. Always before, when he had tired of his wife, he would make sure he was living away from her. This great man, this soldier and sublime jouster was, in fact, a coward. He could not face the tears of women. He hated to see the pain that he inflicted. Any difficult decisions he had to take were so much easier when the victims were safely out of the way. So what was his plan for Anne of Cleves? 
And what would be the fate of my beloved husband?'